Good day to you all and greetings from a freezing cold Berlin this week. Um, my name is Mark McCartney and welcome to the What is a Good Life podcast. If you're new to this podcast over the last couple of years, I've interviewed over 170 people around this question and uh, not to define the good life or to prescribe universal answers, but to, to help you find and define your own answer by listening to other people's reflections, lines of inquiries and curiosities. While I'm also trying to share more genuine expressions of the human experience and genuine conversations. Which brings us to this week and the 52nd episode of the What is a Good Life podcast. I'm delighted to introduce Martin Ebeling as our guest. Martin is a philosopher and co-director at the School of Life Berlin. He is also a co-founder of the Pura Vida Festival Retreat. Well, you can follow his journey toward an exploration of co-flourishing on the Co-Flourishing Project, where he writes under his alias Ocean. In this deeply insightful conversation, we delve into Martin's exploration of the meaning of life, and his shifting from a lone wolf to his fascination with co-flourishing. He shares how his recent insights and revelations on co-flourishing unfolded after a personal retreat in nature and silence, shedding light on valuable lessons we can all draw from these experiences. We explore what has resonated with him on his research on co-flourishing, encompassing the practices he observed at a Zen monastery, Plum Village. Here, monks consistently share about their wonder in existence, and their experiences with difficult emotions. Additionally, we touch on the neuroscience that suggests it takes more than one human brain to create a human mind. I'll repeat that again as that kind of blew my mind in the interview. It takes more than one human brain to create a human mind. And we also reflect on the interdependent nature of our being. I found this conversation to be highly illuminating. We discussed numerous themes that can guide you to living a more connected life, connecting with yourself, fostering meaningful relationships with others and cultivating a deeper connection with the world around you. Look, I took a hell of a lot from this conversation. I think Martin is exploring something really connecting, insightful and, and also beautiful in many ways. And so I hope you take a lot from this conversation as well. And if you enjoy this episode, please like, share and subscribe. And if you're on the podcasting platforms, uh, please continue to leave your lovely reviews as I greatly appreciate your support at this stage of my podcasting journey. So without further ado, the 52nd episode of the What is a Good Life podcast. Martin, thank you very much for joining me today on the What is a Good Life podcast. Uh, from following some of your content on LinkedIn and some of the projects that you've been involved in, and even just this uh, very intriguing note that you sent me over, over the, the festive period as well, I've been very much looking forward to this conversation. So have I. Thank you for having me. So Martin, as I, as I kick these things off with, it is with the question of, is there a question you're trying to answer as you move through life? Yeah, I think there, there, there are uh, many questions I try to answer from the more mundane, uh, what do I need to uh, get from the grocery store this morning, <laughs> to, the, to, <laughs> the, to the more encompassing ones, what's the meaning of life? And I think that that question, you know, uh, morphs into other questions. What am I supposed to do? What does life want from me? Um, what is my calling? What is my purpose? How am I supposed to do this thing called living a life on this planet? I think that's that's something I, I do spend a good good time, um, good amount of time thinking about. And how is that journey presently taking shape for you? Um, what's presently happening for me is that I'm uh, thinking about a term that uh, I don't know if I came up with the term, but um, at least in my mind I did. It's it's called co-flourishing. <laughs> so flourishing is one way of looking at the good life. Um, the good life, you know, you can you can think of happiness as either um, a state 
you know, we experience a lot of pleasure and we accumulate experiences of pleasure and that accumulation of pleasure makes a good life. Or you can think about the good life as a process of unfolding, of developing your potential, of diving deeper and also expanding at the same time. And I think that's a more accurate description of what the good life actually is. It's not mere pleasure. There's an interesting thought experiment. Uh, we can we can uh, dive into it for a moment if, you, if you're game. Uh, so the yes, experiment please. is this. Okay, so the experiment is this. I have a pleasure machine here with me and um, it gives you the, the most blissful experiences that you could ever want and imagine. And uh, I could hook you up so you can have these blissful experiences. But there is a catch. And the catch is that I won't, I won't, once, once I hook you up to the machine, I won't be able to detach the machine from your system. So you will be in this state of supreme bliss and pleasure for the rest of your life. But everything that is your life now will be lost to you. All the relationships that you have, all the um, meaningful struggles that you pursue in life, um, all of that is gone. So it'll just be a simulation of experience that will be pleasurable pleasurable for you, like in the matrix, right? So the yeah. question for to you, Mark, is should I hook you up to the machine? I don't know whether it's my, uh, I don't know, my proclivity from suffering from my Catholic upbringing, um, but there's, there's something about, I don't know, there's something about uh, kind of perpetual uh, pleasure that almost sounds... Uh, I don't know. It's I even put my hands to my face there when you were saying it. It almost sounds there's something like it almost sounds like creepy or it, it, like it would be I don't know like a a dismissal of so much of what life is. Mm, mm, you know, right, like yeah. there's mm -hmm. and I I you know I, I've I had this conversation actually with someone over Christmas where we were re mm -hmm. reflecting on really difficult moments in their life and both this person and I were probably in a, I'd say a reasonably contented phase of our life and thinking mm. if any of these seminal moments in our lives were any different, our present mm. experience wouldn't be what it is, right. which still entails, you know, I have different stresses in my life still, obviously things that I'd like to achieve projects that I need to step into all, all of these kind of feelings that even come with voluntary, uh, um, experiences or things that I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know, just some, something to me about perpetual pleasure sounds yeah. really off-putting to me. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I think the way you phrased it was beautiful. There is a dismissal of what life is also about happening in that experiment, in that thought experiment, right? So life is also about uh, the growth that we experience when we go through a valley of despair. And when yeah. we come out on the other side, um, but also just, you know, developing our um, innate talents um, and pursuing a path that was maybe in some way meant for us um, and working on projects like like this podcast, you know, that might not always be uh, pleasurable. I'm sure there, there are <laughs> sometimes <laughs> periods of struggle <laughs> or, you know, when you Absolutely. edit a show or, you know, um, and and uh, but it's still worthwhile to you. It's a worthwhile pursuit. Right. So um, life is about that, too. And happiness and the good life is not just an accumulation of pleasure. It's also about a growth and expansion. And it's a process of flourishing. Now, I think that um, we should think a little bit further than that. And that's why I offer the concept of co-flourishing, because we're not solitary creatures. Right. So the, I, I would say the standard view in 
Western societies, at least, is that what we call Western societies is that we are these uh, individual containers that house a self or a conscious self, right? And then when we uh, build, when we get lucky and we, we build the skills of emotional intelligence, we can bridge the separation that exists between these isolated containers. We can have uh, wholesome relationships with other people and beings and nature and, and so on and in spirituality and wherever you might find these connections. Um, but uh, fundamentally, we are separate entities and the world exists um, of separate entities. And the alternative view is that we are already and in an interdependent reality. We are part of an independent reality. Our social reality is interdependent. I carry everything um, that I have received in my upbringing through my parents, my friends, my teachers, my, and so on and so on in me, my culture. I, I'm German. I carry the legacy of, of, of war, of um, the Holocaust, of so many things in me. Um, my parents are from East Germany, so I, I carry that in me too, right? Um, so I am because all of that is in a way. And as you said earlier, you are because your life experiences are what they were, right? You are today because your life experiences are what they were. So um, in, in, that, in that picture, we are in an interconnected, we are interconnected beings. Uh, and there's a Buddhist teacher um, who passed away recently, Thich Nhat Hanh, who coined the term interbeing for this. Right? Mm. We inter are, we are interdependent um, existence. And if we think about life that way, um, then I think we can move one step further from flourishing to co-flourishing and understand that our biggest potential lies in exploring these connections, nourishing these connections, and that true abundance for us only comes when we elevate with us what we stand in relationship with. So that the good life is not just an individual pursuit, but a more of a communal pursuit. This all sounds absolutely delightful. Uh, and, I, and I love how you articulated this as well. And it rings true with so much of what I've been experiencing in the last uh, number of years, I would say. It's, I, I'm, I'm intrigued from your perspective what your journey has been to mm -hmm. this point of not only for, I know you kind of elaborated on the, the sense of even just using the word flourishing, uh, mm -hmm. but then the very significant part of the co-flourishing element of this. Uh, just yeah. kind of wonder, curious as to how that's, that's evolved for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I started out on the other end of the spectrum uh, uh, as a lonely wolf, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I was very much in this. <laughs> in this, I'm separate from from everyone else, and the world to some extent is uh, enemy territory, and I have to build these these very very um, thick uh, defenses against the world that is potentially threatening. Right? Yeah. So something out there is is after is after me. They're out there to get me. And so from, from this lo lonely wolf that was, you know, carried trauma from uh, previous generations, but also from my own uh, experience uh, as a child and a teenager uh, into adulthood, and then realized at some point, well, this is not really helpful. This is not a helpful way of looking at the world. This might have been beneficial at some point when there was a vulnerable teenager protecting himself uh, against, against uh, a certain environment. But uh, it's, it's no longer helpful. 
and it's not it's not wise either so i'm, I'm i studied philosophy I'm, I'm a philosopher by training and it's not it's not a wise way of looking at life right it's not helpful it's unwise um, um and nevertheless it's deeply in my system right so um there was a long uh healing journey to to move from a lonely wolf to you know, maybe a turtle that can stick its head out of its <laughs> protective, uh, what, what do you call this? The, the shell. The shell. The turtle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it can, can just lurk out and then kind of move out more and, and um, become a different being, you know, that, that is out there more in the world and, and show up with vulnerability and doesn't feel as threatened. Um, and I think, you know, there's so many elements to that healing journey. I'm super happy to dive into it, but uh, um and I don't think it's it's complete. I think you know the, the lonely wolf is still very much alive in me at times, and uh, I try to to um, have a loving and nourishing relationship um, with the lonely wolf in me. So, yeah. Isn't uh, isn't that interesting though the the idea of you know all all what you've said in terms of co flourishing and this uh, even what Thich Nhat Hanh said in terms of interbeing and this beautiful kind of um, capturing of all that's gone into creating who you are in this very moment. And I feel it too. I, I don't know whether it's from the point of view of uh, still some, um, not like distrust of the world. I feel I, I live quite a trusting experience, but I still very much, there's still mistrust still exists within me. Um, and even, I, I don't know whether it's a sense of, wanting to go forth with my projects and, and achieve something that is very much that I did or, or something to that effect. Mm, but mm, uh, mm, the, mm. the lonely wolf still, <laughs> still exists within me <laughs> while acknowledging so many of these other things as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting what you said. Um, you know, sometimes it's, it's tied up with, with ego, right? So sometimes what's, what's holding us back is the belief that what we do is about us rather than it's about the thing itself, right? Yeah. So some, you know, you might you might have um, a perspective on your podcast. Sometimes it's about you, and uh, oh, my name is in connected with it, and I get the fame, and I'm, you know, my show is growing, and so on. Uh, hopefully, the audience, you know. Yeah. And, <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes it's just about the question, right? It's just about the or the guests that that, that you host so beautifully, and um, and and then it changes. I'm, I I would assume. I mean, happy. To, to hear it from you does it does it change for you when you make it more about the question or the project and less about yourself yeah it's 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 interesting because i'm i'm there but i think there's also a a purity of sharing even of myself that doesn't feel mm -hmm. personal um, mm -hmm. or that sorry not a purity there's a quality um mm -hmm. and yeah definitely i i think Sometimes as well, even if I am not even making it about myself, but sharing something of a personal nature, um, it's also, um, I think there's a, a, a desire to be understood, uh, mm. you know, and, and just while you're asking it now, that kind of makes me think of, you know, there's a, that there's an insecurity maybe even within that of, I want to be, I want to be, if I'm going to put something out, I want it to be very clearly understood that this is what I mean. There's not a playfulness or a trust that if I say something and um, mm. that it will just be interpreted uh, in a, in a fair manner. And so sometimes mm. I can get caught mm -hmm. up with that, but yeah, I, I, mm -hmm. I definitely, mm -hmm. 
I definitely want the the conversation to be a co-creation or a stepping or an unfolding into some degree of unknown. And in mm-hmm. that in that space, it is leaving aside what I'm hoping to protect of myself or project of mm-hmm. myself. And it's mm-hmm. more in the curiosity or interest of uncovering something for me and 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 uncovering something for a listener and a guest as well. Like if we're if we're all willing to to go there. Yeah, I think I'm in a similar, somewhat similar situation. It's not as, uh, I mean, you have the, it's a, it's a very, um, there's a lot of aliveness in a conversation, right? So it happens, it's unfolding in the present moment. Um, for, for me, with this co-flourishing uh, project that I'm trying to bring into the world, uh, it's a similar dynamic um, because I, I, I was thinking about this for a very long term and uh, part, part of the, the, the story, how it emerged was uh, that I was just with uh, two, two, two friends and we had co-working sessions. And at some point we realized these are not co-working sessions. These are co-flourishing sessions because we, in each each day when we when we met, we, we took time to dive into a question or a problem that one of us might have. And we dedicated time to just sharing our perspectives and finding new ways of looking at it and hopeful, hopefully helpful ways and, and solutions to the problem. And uh, so we, we we renamed our group chat to from co-working to co-flourishing, and that's how the how the concept was was born. And then I've been sitting with this for for a long time. Um, but there were always doubts in my mind. Should it, you know, is this uh, who am I to do this? You know, part parts <laughs> holding me back, uh, afraid of judgment and probably judging myself. Uh, you know, some parts of me judging other parts and so on. So like this internal uh, mess that we, that we have going on. Um, and it was only now over uh, Christmas, I actually went to, to a hut in, in nature and just meditated, went for long walks and uh, was in silence. And then at some point it came out and I, I, I started writing um, the co-flourishing project on, on Substack. So it's, it's coming out now. And uh, it, it took this retreat from society and from, you know, the being in contact with others to really feel what truly wants to come out right and to to have full trust in that and, and just just allow it to unfold could you track i'm not trying to make this a linear experience of day one mm-hmm. day three and this and and so forth and, and unfolded this way but what was the the quality or the significance of that space um, that quietness, uh, whatever way you'd like to characterize it, what was the significance of that in the the process of of l- allowing what wanted to come out to come out? Hmm. Um, I think for me it was it was hugely significant, um, and it took two days of just being with myself in silence for you know things to come up. Uh, negative emotions, um, negative thoughts. And on the third day, I was able to to shift it, I found a way of just letting go and, and inviting in what what is helpful to invite in. And I found really deep states of, of, of meditation in that. Um, and the connection to nature was also very, very uh, helpful you know i think in a way this question what is the meaning of life like nature doesn't ask life itself doesn't ask that question a tree doesn't ask right. that question you know life itself is just growing it's doing its thing it, it knows what to do right? and it's 
it's finding it's finding ways you know you you cut over branch well then another branch will grow uh, even even bigger so life doesn't ask that question and i think if we're in contact with nature and if we f experience ourselves more as part of nature i think these questions also become a little less um powerful or um the volume is decreased in our mind you know it's not it's not a, it's not a, so much a question it's more a way of being and so just to be allow to allow myself to enter into this state of being where this just is the outpouring of that state of being that was very significant for the process for me there's something really beautiful about doing something or being something that we feel aligns with our own internal nature and as you said, like just how that autumn, that seems to lend a hand to then the noise, the questions, not even mm -hmm. the doubts, because they can all simultaneously exist and you can still move through an experience. But there's something I find extremely comforting about feeling whatever I may be doing, if it just feels like it's me or an, an expression of me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then, I don't know, the, the chips may fall where they may at that point, because... Mm -hmm. If it's not, if the, the point of my life isn't to be me, well then, yeah, that, that, that leads me to a pretty confused state. You know, you know what I mean? But, okay, so your, but, your, your Catholic upbringing didn't take that away from you. No. <laughs> it's okay to be I, me. I, I, yeah, yeah. I, I must say, I, I left, uh, I left uh, at a pretty early stage. Um, mm. um, but, but yeah, it's, there's something really lovely about mm -hmm. the idea of just engaging in nature and just seeing everything else just kind of go about its business without the mm -hmm. second guessing, without the narratives. Um, mm -hmm. And just we're not judging that so much. Like I, mm -hmm. I've mentioned before, that I love this, uh, an observation by Ram Das where he mentions going through a forest and he's not, you know, looking at every tree going, that one's too tall, too fat, too short, too mm -hmm. thin. Do you know what I mean? Like the mm -hmm. we're more than comfortable with just, letting nature do its thing mm -hmm. why not just let ourselves do our thing whatever that looks like absolutely i i, I love uh, thinking of uh our life and also humans as uh plants actually you know right um so you know like sometimes you have characters that you might find a little bit of putting and then just imagine what what kind of flower is that you know we're all like life life you know when we go to nature, we're like, oh, life is expressing itself in such beautiful colors and shapes, right? And then when we see humans, we're like, ah, you're annoying and you're annoying and I don't like you and I don't like you either. <laughs> you know? But that's, this is also life expressing itself in beautiful shapes and colors, you know? So if we can just switch the perspectives, it's helpful to me at least sometimes to just then imagine what, what flower, what, in what way is life expressing itself in this person? And what is, how is life coming into abundance through you, even though I might not like that particular, it's not a flower I would put in my living room, right? It's not, I don't, I don't vibe with that particular expression of abundance as much as with others, but it's still an expression of abundance. And I think life, you know, life is a process actually of, of co-flourishing. When we look into nature, we see that it's an interconnected web of being and that each part needs the other parts for it to grow and to to grow into its its full abundance, and I think there is a, I think there's a beautiful lesson. I, I learned it from looking at uh, what is called syntropic agriculture, 
which is a, an approach to agriculture um, developed by, by a Swiss gentleman who um, I think Gregor Georg or Gregor Götz, I've, I've got the name right now. Um, and he uh, just looked at nature and he looked at what nature is doing with a barren field and how it comes into abundance. And there are stages to it that he had identified. Um, there are the, the colonizing plants, and then there is an accumulation system happening. So the colonizing plants are pushed out because other plants can um, uh, grow. And then after this accumulation system, there is an abundance system when the ecosystem is really in full swing and uh, nature has. So what, what it shows is first a path towards abundance that he mimics in agriculture. So he then went to, he, he tried it in Switzerland. He's, I think, now doing it in Brazil. Um, and just creates these very lush ecosystems mimicking this process. Um, but there's also a, a message here, at least for me, that I took away from it is one, nature wants to come into abundance. So with whatever resources there are in an ecosystem, nature will create the most abundance that can potentially be there, right? And we are nature, right? And so for me, this means nature wants us to come into abundance, right? It's a natural drive. Life wants to be in its full abundance. And the way to get there, and I want to link it back to co-flourishing, the way to get there is not with our individual pursuit of happiness on our own yoga mat, on our own cushion, in our own career, and so on and so on. But just as nature does it, leaning into our interconnectedness, nourishing what nourishes us, and growing together and reaching a state of abundance as a communal uh, or a collective pursuit. Uh, nature wants us to come into abundance. That's absolutely gorgeous. Uh, mm. And I, I also love, by the way, this uh, viewing other people as different plants or, or flowers. That's that's definitely something mm. I'm going to be taking from from this conversation already. <laughs> so just in, you in can try it out right then... now. What, what what flower am I? For, you know, just... <laughs> <laughs> A beautiful rose, Martin. A beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so so with it like with this um i know you're talking about inter interconnection interdependency you were you went off to uh to brandenburg and you had this uh kind of self-retreat as you you coined it to me before you saw nature you saw you you saw nature just do its thing that it also provides you inspiration even within your own process so what can you can you kind of map out more what the the co-flourishing project um even looks like or entails or i know mm -hmm. you've been kind of given some of the the inspiration behind it but just what mm -hmm. does it kind of look like then on a on a kind of practical level mm -hmm. if, if you get me yeah yeah of course so i think the first um part the kind of the conceptual innovation should already have practical consequences right so when we the the terms that we use to describe reality, the concepts that we use, can change the reality that we describe, right? So when I when I think about my life, um, as or when I think of all the people that I meet as as complete jerks who are probably out there to get me, <laughs> I will relate to them differently than when I think, oh, these are all deep down they're all good-hearted people. You know, they have. Buddha nature and <laughs> they're just these gems and occasionally there are confused 
by strong emotions that they can't handle so well. So sometimes I might get some negativity, but it has nothing to do with them. So I describe them in different terms, and that leads to a different way of relating, right? Um, now, if I think about the good life in a different way and not as in, an, as in an individual way, then this will already have consequences for how I live my life. I will be more aware of the connections that I have. I will hopefully also spend more time and energy nurturing them. Um, and I don't only mean connections to other humans, but also to the more than human life. Um, so that's already one practical implication that I hope a new concept can can generate. Uh, but then I think there are also many, many co-flourishing practices, as we might call them, that exist in many communities um, that are not necessarily part of mainstream culture, right? So part of the co-flourishing project is to look at these um, practices that we might call co-flourishing practices and uh, make them more known in, in, in mainstream culture so that they receive wider uh, adoption. Um, one, so it's, it's a bit of a research project also for me to dive into these practices and explore them. Um, and I think they happen in three, at least in three categories. It's about, you know, my own flourishing and co-flourishing with the multiplicity that I am with the multiple parts that I have within me, how can I co-flourish with, with those? Um, it's co-flourishing in relationships and it's also uh, co-flourishing with um, the planet uh, and life itself, right? Uh, I can if, if I can share a, a bit more. So oh, I please. Went to, yeah, 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 please. So, so <laughs> I think uh, uh, I also want to look, I work a lot with uh, organizations and, and leaders and uh uh, think about you know how to build an organizational culture that that might be emblematic of co-flourishing, and one organization that I think is is really a great example is uh, um, the uh, monastery Plum Village that Thich Nhat Hanh actually founded, the, the person who coined the term into being. Uh, and so I went there and um, just explored how how the how they uh, do things over there. So and. It's, it's interesting because they, of course, they have their um, own way of flourishing on the spiritual path, right? Uh, but for, so they, they meditate, they do all their practices. Um, but for Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, it, it was very evident that you can't do this by yourself. So he says the most important spiritual duty of a monk, even before any meditation and rituals or whatever, is to build community, is to build a Sangha, a Buddhist community. Um, because without the Sangha, without the Buddhist community, your um, mind of, of compassion will wither. So you need even for your own, and it's a beautiful example of interbeing, because for your own path towards enlightenment, for your own spiritual growth, you need the community. And without the community, you can't achieve that type of abundance, right? So we can only do it together. And when I when I came to Plum Village, I interviewed the, the, the monks, the monastics that I met there. And I um, obviously also read a bunch of books <laughs> that, uh, that, that are available um, on the practices that they have. And they have a lot of practices of uh, uh, preventing or transforming conflict. Uh, one of them is uh, watering the flowers. 
So it's a, also a, a communal practice of um, first sharing what um, what is really beautiful, what you perceive as beautiful, as watering the flowers, and then also expressing your pain, pain that you have, right? And it's not even necessary that there's a direct response to that. It's enough that the, um, the container of the community receives that message and can hold that pain. And then there's trust that this can have an effect, right? This, this awareness, because people are listening with compassion, with the intent to reduce suffering in the community. And they have other practices too. And um, they do Dharma sharings, which is, I think, one of the key ways in which humanity has to kind of come back to to a very basic practice of co-flourishing. It's just sitting in a circle and talking about your emotions and listening with an open heart, you know? So yeah. how, how often do we actually do that, uh, which was a basic practice for all, for all of humanity until uh, we kind of lost our way, you know, just sitting in a circle and sharing what's actually there. And this is, um, this year I, or sorry, now that we're into January 1st, last, towards the end of last year, I was hosting conversation groups that were doing just this. Mm-hmm. And I even notice in my personal life when I have friendships or relationships where we do just share what we're experiencing, mm-hmm. nobody has to do any, like, sorry, yeah. people can listen. There's lots, sorry, that's that's me looking at it from, <laughs> you know, li- listening is almost inactive, if you know what I mean. But like truly paying attention to somebody, being present with them, that mm-hmm. does a phenomenal amount mm-hmm. without us even having to open our mouths. Mm-hmm. And, and I it almost goes in complete contradiction probably to how I lived the first 30 to 35 years of my life where somebody says something and I probably tell them it's all going to be okay and this Mm. is how you can fix it and 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 that does so little um Mm. versus what I've seen just this sitting sharing acknowledging Mm. and there's something really beautiful I think about sharing our inner experience or our stream of consciousness sometimes Mm-hmm. which doesn't revolve around having even to share our deep traumas. Mm-hmm. It's it, there's an, it's such an incredible intimacy, I think, that is created from just mm-hmm. just sharing what is. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. And for for that to happen, you need the others to be present in a certain way. Right. So you can mm-hmm. you can generate that experience for yourself and by yourself. And though it's it's still so deeply nourishing to have that experience and it's one of the basic needs that we have as humans is to be heard and to be seen to be understood um by others right when when you were sorry when you were interviewing uh these monks and you were Mm -hmm. at um it's plum tree village isn't it Uh, or plum village plum village Village, right Mm -hmm. um when you were at plum village then were you like did you get a very strong sense of feeling that this was a, a very like embodied um, and lived experience for people uh, there? Mm-hmm. I I did. It was it was even a little bit confusing. I went uh, for a two week retreat, and when I arrived, I already sensed that there's a very gentle vibe to this community. It's very gentle, and the practice also is very gentle. First, I called it lazy Zen because they only, you know, they, they sit for the meditation is like at most, like I think at most 45 minutes to an hour in the morning, but sometimes just half an hour. Then there's a walking meditation before lunch. 
And then um, there is another evening sitting meditation for half an hour to 45 minutes or so. Um, and, you know, from the ex retreat experiences I have had, it's it's like 10 hours sitting in meditation in silence, not talking to anyone, <laughs> so, you know, very, yeah. the opposite, right? Um, but at the same time, I felt like it's it's really, it's the, the, the vibe is so gentle that at some point I rephrased it from lazy Zen to gentle Zen. And the practice uh, uh, continues throughout the day, at least that's the idea, by being aware of um, the wonders of existence, really. So mindfulness, um, to according to Thich Nhat Hanh, at least, is, I mean, he, he says, you know, Buddhism is all about suffering. It's the first noble truth, right? Life is suffering. Um, but there is so much wonder and beauty in life that mindfulness can help us become aware of. So in a way, I think he did to Buddhism what positive psychology did to psychology, right? We don't, uh, we don't need to look only at the negative side of things. We can also look at the beauty and the wonders. And we can walk around the beautiful nature in, uh, around Plum Village or anywhere, really, and just become aware of, of its beauty and be mindful and present with, with what, what is in the present moment. As we eat food, you know, we can become fully aware of um, the, the tastes. And we can also become aware of um, our interconnectedness with the people who harvested these foods and the sun and the rain and the microbes in the earth and everything that contributed to nourishing this food. So it's, it can be a deep experience of um, being interconnected with everything that exists, even with the minerals in the earth. Um, in this in the simple experience of, of eating so um and, and and then i reflected further and i thought why do they you know why do they have all these practices why do they do all of this um why why, why so much effort <laughs> in a way you know like why is here a community that puts so much effort on creating harmony uh when in other organizations we don't see that as much and then it it, it dawned on me that it's a closed system you know, these monastics, they work together and they live together. They share room together. There is no way out. It's a closed system. It's not completely true because they, they do have retreatants coming in. And that's actually, it's, it's important to the ecosystem there as well. And they go out and, and teach abroad and so on and so on. It's not completely closed, but um, we can look at it as a closed system. And then it makes sense why they put so much effort into kind of um, cleaning their emotional laundry properly. You know, because they can't rely on outsiders to do it for them. And that is something that we have in other organizations happening a lot, right? So you go to work, you have a shitty boss who, you know, who is a little tyrant. And then you go home and you vent to your friends or to your family. Um, and the organization that you work in relies on other parts of society to clean that emotional laundering, to reduce that suffering mm. in you. Because if it wasn't reduced, you couldn't go back to work. You would just yell at your boss at some point. You would flip, right? So um, the I thought this is something really interesting that or important that what if we can create organizations that don't rely on families and friends and and others to to do the work for them? But what if we can create organizations that create harmony within themselves that have practices of expressing emotional pain and and processing it not maybe in 
directly saying this is how we can help and this is how we can change it and everything will be okay but just by by having an opportunity to be listened to and to be seen mm-hmm. in your in your emotional pain and how how would that change the the, the world of work i wonder I am just in my head, I'm going exponentially, um, but it's, uh, I'd never, I'd never really thought about the role of family and friends in kind of washing our emotional laundry from, from work experiences. And that kind of maintains the status quo or your capacity to continue to do the job. Mm-hmm. Whereas, but it, it really is just, it keeps things manageable, right? It never gets to a state of flourishing then if the the direct participants can't acknowledge their own emotions or their own experiences to one another, mm-hmm. like it, it's almost, uh, it's almost like having an emotional affair with somebody else to, <laughs> you know, to, to be able to continue on in, in, a, in, a, in the current, uh, the current relationship. And, mm-hmm. and therefore it will never, it will never, um, become the thing that is sustainable in of itself like that could mm-hmm. be part of a, a not a, i know you're saying it's not a fully closed community at, at, at plum village but just mm-hmm. that they do the work they constantly do the work mm-hmm. to to keep uh cleaning uh, cleaning out whatever emotional baggage they there mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. and you know i i think this is one of the biggest kind of misconceptions we have even with some of our great relationships you know people kind of we kind of maybe even look at the outside from other people's relationships and we think they've got a really good relationship as if it's almost this like static entity of good relationship. Mm. But I know even in my own experience, um, whether with my, my wife or even good friends that I have a lot of intimacy with, if we are going to be real with each other, that opens itself up to potentially potential volatile conversations or emotional uh, situations Mm -hmm. that we continually need to go through in order to mm-hmm. to maintain the quality of the relationship we mm-hmm. we can never just get to a place where i had a great two years with this person and therefore mm-hmm. we don't have to keep going into these conversations mm-hmm. so right. i i, I love mean, again, the idea if, yeah. of this yeah please yeah if, again if you look at a relationship like a plant you know you can't say oh now this is the state this is the shape that looks great yeah so now please stop growing <laughs> you know <laughs> if you if you ask the plant to stop growing it, it means death right yeah so in order for a relationship to be alive no matter how beautiful it is it'll it will require our willingness to go into these conversations and to to explore whatever is alive in in any moment with each other just when you mentioned you did various research um that took you to in in different areas um Mm -hmm. what is uh what has surprised you almost the most in what you've discovered in, in whatever way it surprised you? Oh, I mean, I went into many different disciplines and the interesting thing is that they all seem to say the same thing in their own vocabulary. Um, you know, hmm. it is an interconnected reality and like deal with it. <laughs> you know? so, yeah. um, but the, I think what I find most fascinating um, is probably the neuroscience of co-flourishing. Um, I can give you two examples. One of them is from uh, a quote from Elisa Feldman Barrett, who is a world-renowned neuroscientist on the neuroscience of emotions. And in her book on emotions, how emotions are made, which is really an an amazing uh, 
popular science book that took her seven or 13 years to write. I don't know, but like a lot of her career is in there and it's, it's really brilliant. And uh, there's one quote and she doesn't spend much time um, musing on it or exploring its significance, but she says it takes more than one human brain to create a human mind. It creates more wow. than one human brain to create a human mind. And that is something that we don't usually think. We think oh, brain, mind, right? Okay, brain, consciousness. Okay, we can that that might be true, right? But she says for in for it to have a human mind, the, the the mind that we are accustomed to, it needs something else. It needs input from the culture around it to receive the categories that it takes to construct human experience in the way that we're used to, right? And she's particularly concerned with emotion categories. So um, concepts like I'm angry, I'm, I'm hurt, I'm sad, and so on and so on. Um, these are concepts that we first learn from others to make sense of our emotional experience, which in her theory is really an interpretation of uh, affect in a certain way. Um, and if we, can, if we manage to interpret it a certain way, our inner world a certain way, um, then it's, it's helpful for us to, to manage our energy and, and, and so on and so on. So there's a more complicated story behind it. But the, uh, the consequence here is that for even we're so interconnected then even for us to have the experience of the world and of ourselves that we currently have would be impossible without others, without a culture around us that enables us to have that experience. So that, that, is, that was one very surprising thing about uh, the neuroscience of co-flourishing. And the, another aspect is um, with what a child needs to regulate uh, themselves. So, uh, you know, the, the, the brain of a child is often uh, overwhelmed by experience, especially emotional experience. And it needs an attuned adult brain to help regulate that emotional experience for them right so in a way the the brain of the infant uses the more emotionally more mature neurocircuits of the adult to regulate its its, its emotional experience and if that co-regulation is going well then it will learn self-regulation so co-regulation comes before self-regulation and it's actually two, like one brain using the other brain to do it with them. And so I think that's also a fascinating perspective. Which, I don't know, it, it, it's, uh, there seems like there's a kind of wonderfully grounding element to how we not tether ourselves, but more like mesh or interact with another field uh, around us. Like I was almost thinking mm -hmm. there, as you were saying that of, if you have any particular friend who always just seems very kind of calm or present, like just mm -hmm. even sitting in their presence, sometimes it, it almost, mm -hmm. it almost gives like it, it alters how I'm engaging with mm -hmm. that moment or, or mm -hmm. them as well. Like, I, I think there's yeah. a beautiful kind of, not like dancing with, but just like just flowing with somebody else's uh, state. Yeah. I, I want I just want to, say one thing to that. It's not that we do something to enter that field, right? It's not separate self doing something to enter a field. It's from the beginning, we're in that field. Yeah. 
there's nothing you can do. If I if I frown at you, if I smile at you, it'll have a direct effect on you. Um, yeah. You are in my field. I am in your field. I am because you are. You are because I am. From the very beginning, there is no, you know, that's that's how ingrained the thinking is that we're separate. That we think, oh, two separate, and then I like this, this system has to do something in order to be in the field of that other system. That's not the case. We are constantly in each other's fields without doing yeah, anything. Yeah, that's, that's, you put that much better than I was fumbling around with. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for, <laughs> thank you for clarifying that. Um, so then you've, you know, you've, you've identified these areas of, okay, how can I flourish with myself? How can I flourish with other people? How can I flourish with the the world around me? And even just, you know, when you're mentioning the con or the awareness of where my food comes from, all the things mm -hmm. that are involved in, in the cultivation of that and the interconnectivity between me and that. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned going to, to Plum Village then and just this very important uh, part of just this uh, communication, this interdependency, then touching on areas, whether it's the, the emotional sense of that I, or, you know, that we, reg we regulate each other in, in the way, or in this, in this coexisting way that we do, what, where does this, where, what, what then, what then are you kind of calling into, into action then i know you're saying that these there's these ideas and even these concepts and holding these will alter the way in which we perceive the world and interact with one another mm -hmm. um, how does this uh, present itself then in in what you're in what you're creating or, or offering mm, ask me again in 10 years from now <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i honestly don't know so right now it's just uh i'm it just wants to come out in the way it does. Yeah. And um, I feel alive doing it, talking about it, writing about it. Uh, I, I have this research project of collecting practices and exploring them and diving deeper. Uh, and um, I think there is just so much to share and so much so many ways of experiencing beauty or growth um, and just making them available to, to more people. And it's really, I mean, look, it's, it's, I'm not uh, a saint. I'm doing it for myself mainly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's coming through me and I, I, I feel good doing it. So it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's, it's really for myself and to explore these practices is good for myself. And I know that I have so much learnings or, um, evolution still to do in order to embody co-flourishing more fully you know so there is there's also ego there there is you know there there's every everything is there um and for me to just follow that path and find ways of of dancing with that and and finding ways of you know staying connected to humility and and but also experiencing these, um, how would you call that? These waves of ego energy going through your system. You know, when you think, "Oh, I've written a beautiful blog article, and this is really cool," and you know, and so on and so on. Um, then um, it's it's also a way of experiencing yourself in the world that is helpful to your own, to my to my own path. I think so, this so part is, of part uh, of the project is just my, my, my own living my own journey and 
might not be interesting to everyone. <laughs> yeah, well, it's 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 very, it's very interesting to me if that's any consolation. Um, the the sense though of what you just described there though, like you feel alive while doing it. Um, you feel like you know you're following you're you're following what your your own path. You're like there's an aliveness to it, and mm-hmm. I, I I just think that there's. Um, I really do think that's one of the more underappreciated qualities. Like, you know, we're often running towards outcomes and end goals mm-hmm. and results and, mm-hmm. and trying to fulfill. I love how you answered the question of what else will, what, what will this entail? And you're asking, mm-hmm. ask me in 10 years time, mm-hmm. because there is something about standing in that place of, of just following this almost, um, that mm-hmm. I think we, we've disengaged from or detached ourselves from, and and in some ways, I think detached ourselves from. I don't want to say the reality of the unfolding of life, but mm-hmm. we're we're almost trying to put a a, a plan on top of something that's mm-hmm. like vibrant and mm-hmm. pulsing and moving in ways that we we can't predict. Mm-hmm. And just when we have the courage, almost to stand in this place of aliveness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just personally think that's one of the more underappreciated or undervalued aspects of, mm-hmm. of feeling, I don't know, just this feeling of life through us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it you know, having goals in a way has a, has an aspect of wanting to control life and reality, right? And um, it's mind, very mind driven. And I think aliveness is, uh, is the whole system. Right, your mind doesn't feel alive. It might feel excited, or it might feel curious, or whatever. If the if the mind feels at all, <laughs> you know. But <laughs> you're when you're alive, it's your whole system it being in that state and um, allowing. I think it has to do with trust, also, right? So if 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 I trust less, I have to have more goals. If I trust fully, I don't need any goals. There's just a flow that's taking me somewhere, and I. I have trust that it's taking me to more beautiful shores. If I have, if I don't have trust, then I, I have a map, and I know what place I want to reach on the map. If I can let go of the map, then the river can take me um, somewhere, and I don't know where. <laughs> which, <laughs> which is, is I think how I'm trying to live, which is how I'm experiencing life. I think over the last few years, and as you even just said that, something in me was simultaneously terrified, <laughs> as you said. Yeah, uh, of course, <laughs> you, of course. <laughs> you know I mean? So it's like <laughs> I was simultaneously reaffirmed by your your uh, um, the way you were uh, interpreting this, and then you also simultaneously terrified me. Which I think don't 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 just <laughs> jump on a float on a river and throw away the map who you know that's not sound advice to <laughs> yeah, give yeah. to anyone so <laughs> I think it's a it's a it's a sane response to be somewhat afraid of that yeah absolutely look martin during the course of the conversation you're kind of uh, like mentioning the things that you're looking to explore the questions you've always been kind of asking yourself in life whether it's ex- exploring even these through your 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 background in philosophy like asking what the the meaning of life what is it i'm i'm to do in this life what does this life mean um to kind of moving away from a um or shifting from a a lone wolf perspective into this idea of of co-flourishing like 
you know, you mentioned this idea, this idea of the isolation of the yoga mat or sometimes our meditative mm-hmm. practices and things like this now into, into even observations of interdependency, interconnection. And that's truly how, whether it's even observing biodiversity or, or whatever it may be, this is truly mm-hmm. how humans fully embody or fully live what some of the elements that I think a lot of us are trying to achieve, you know, I put in air quotes, achieve through our own personal um, spiritual practices sometimes when it doesn't loop back into this or if it doesn't coexist with this this idea of co-flourishing. Mm-hmm. Um, just really intrigued to, to ask you the question, as I always wrap these conversations up with, uh, what is a good life for you, Martin? I've, I've, I thought I've tried to answer that question <laughs> in the course of our conversation. Um, what is a good life for me? So it, it is coming into a state of aliveness that is uh, that that comes from a deeper. Um, sense of existence, I would say. Uh, I don't know what the source is. I don't want to say a deeper source, but um, the, you know, the, 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 the stillness that you can experience in, in meditation has something to do with the type of aliveness you can experience uh, when you're fully open to life. Um, and I think for a lot of people, they spend a lot of time um, in expansion, right? Expanding their mind and, and growing and looking what's out there and uh, using using whatever uh, modalities there are, you know, from spiritual practices to psychedelics to everything else there is. Um, and they expand. And that's beautiful. That's great. We want to expand. But then to bring it all back to one focal point to create a center of gravity in your being where it's uh, like the big bang, you know, where you bring your focus down to one, one thing that is smaller than a grain of sand. You know, you're so focused on one breath that, and you're just so, so present with what is, right? Maybe you let go of focus and you're just in your, in your Rigpa mind as, as the Tibetans say. And then it can expand again. You know, I think this is something, um, whatever form and shape and color your life takes, I think that is a good dynamic to unfold in life. The combining expansion with the practice of finding your center again, and then expanding from there again. I think the, the energy, the, the creative energy in life is coming from the center and not from the expansion. You just need the expansion to be inspired, to get inspiration and to leave your ego behind and your conditioning behind and so on and so on. So it's definitely worth pursuing all sorts of uh, expansionary quests, but bring it all back um, to a center of gravity. I just found that answer very soothing <laughs> as, as I was listening along to it. So thank you very much for that. Look, Martin, I've found this conversation to be both extremely enjoyable, extremely insightful, and I look forward to to um, to following what what unfolds with this co flourishing project. Mm-hmm. And thank you very, very much for joining us here on the What Is a Good Life podcast today. Thank you, Martin. Thank you for having this beautiful podcast, and thank you for having me. <laughs>